I wasn't there, but my fiance was. And I've been with him over the course of the years when we discovered that other people we knew were also at that show. And then just to hear them talk about their experience, even though they didn't know each other at the time, they weren't there. It's like they went to the show together. And you are having like a communal conversation with like 2,500 people. And it feels cool to be able to like hear snippets of conversation and be like, oh, no, I know exactly what they're talking about. It's kind of obvious that after two years of COVID, festivals are a way of, of bringing the community together again and healing and, and feeling like you're part of, a, of something larger. This week on Interstates, it's Festival Fest. Conversations inspired by festivals. How to prepare for a festival. What festivals can do for a community and a longer conversation about a festival focused on women in early music. Among other things, we hear what the revival of early music has to do with second wave feminism. That's all coming up right after this. Welcome to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers, coming to you from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, where spring is rolling towards summer, and that means it's festival season. We have a number of festivals coming up in this part of the world, so I thought we'd take this week to think about festivals in general. And I know festivals are fun and all, but I don't want you to go wrong in your festival experience. So I called up an expert to get some festival advice. My best advice when it comes to music festivals is not to wing it, is not to just show up and see what draws you in or looks interesting, because you're inevitably going to miss something that you really wanted to see. And you might not even know that that thing is going to be there and that you really want to see it until you take the time to do the research and to prepare. This is Danielle Look. She spent a few years as a traveling reporter on the festival circuit. And you thought going to a festival was all fun and games, didn't you? An escape from regular life where you have to think ahead, plan, maybe put together a spreadsheet. Not so, according to Danielle. I think the the key takeaway there is that uh, there might be something there that you really want to see that you're not going to know about until you take the time to really look at what's who's playing or what's showing. But, you know, it like half of the fun of going to a music festival, any festival, is the discovery aspect of it as well. So, you know, you kind of got to play it both ways in that regard and, and be open to deviating from your schedule or from your plan, which could result in a very, very happy accident in finding something that you, you still didn't know was going to be there that you loved. The other really big thing that can make or break the experience is weather. So check the weather, do your research, wear comfortable footwear, bring sunscreen, wear a hat, carry an umbrella if the festival will allow you to carry in an umbrella. The thing is, of course, things are going to happen that you can't predict or that you can't be prepared for. And some of those aren't going to be great. There was a concert somewhere in like Wisconsin or something like that. And it was a Rage Against the Machine concert. And this particular venue is kind of like Deer Creek Verizon in Indianapolis, uh, the big, large amphitheater. But they just got tons and tons of rain and it turned the whole thing turned into a mud pit. And I wasn't there, but my fiance was. And I've been with him over the course of the years when we discovered that other people we knew were also at that show. And then just to hear them talk about their experience, even though they didn't know each other at the time, they weren't there. It's like they went to the show together, you know. And maybe that's what it's really about, 
for all the planning you might do ahead of time. Maybe it comes down to that shared experience with a bunch of friends and strangers and strangers who become friends. Once, Danielle was at the Forecastle Festival in downtown Louisville. There was a downpour. And when they evacuated the festival grounds, we went to the parking garage where we had a cooler with some sandwiches prepared and, and lots of other people were hanging out at their cars. Somebody, you know, pulled out a, maybe they had a cornhole game or something like that. Like we started just kind of hanging out, making friends. And then, you know, it's not ideal, but you got to make the most of it. And then eventually you're going to go back into the festival and then maybe you're going to see your parking garage buddies standing, you know, in the crowd. And, and it just makes it that much more fun and memorable. Danielle Look is a digital marketer, formerly from Indianapolis, now in Denver, Colorado. As I said, Interstates is all about festivals this week. We've got your film festivals. We've got your music festivals. Early music festivals, specifically. We've got your Kurt Vonnegut festivals. Kurt Vonnegut festivals? There might just be one of those. It's called Grand Falloon, and it's a celebration of regional arts, culture, and ideas here in southern Indiana, not far from Kurt Vonnegut's hometown of Indianapolis. Vonnegut is a major inspiration for Grand Falloon. And we try to infuse the festival with Vonnegut's democratic approach to art making. He believed everyone should practice in art, and that's what we try to celebrate at the festival. This is Ed Dallas Comentale. I'm a professor of English at Indiana University. I'm also the associate vice provost for arts and humanities and the director of the Arts and Humanities Council. Vonnegut is a, such an interesting uh, character for us. Uh, he's, a, he's really an interesting figure for Indiana and the Midwest. He's a famous dropout. I mean, he, he failed high school. He failed college. He didn't really do that well in the Army even, uh, you know, as famously documented in Slaughterhouse-Five. But he was a persistent writer and thinker, and he was an incredibly uh, self-educated man. And he inspired an entire generation to sort of think critically about the world around them. And I think a lot of people are drawn to him, particularly a lot of young people are drawn to Vonnegut because he, he paved his own way as an intellect and a writer. And I think that's the spirit that we try to, to, try to get here um, through the Grand Falloon. At which there will be concerts and readings, crafts, theater. Out on the street on June 4th, some of my favorite things that are happening is there's going to be a, a haiku death match where people can write poetry out in the streets. Uh, that's going to definitely be a blast. There's also a, a nature tour of the century. People will be taking a, a tour with a giant Vonnegut puppet, and they could be writing their thoughts about nature and the environment and then submitting them to a time capsule. Festivals are about coming together, whether it's for music or literature or a nature tour with a giant puppet. And in one sense, that's what grand fallooning is all about. Vonnegut coined the term. And a grand falloon is essentially a group of people whose association is, is meaningless but still takes on meaning for them. And Vonnegut was really suspicious of grand falloons. Uh, he defined a number of, uh, I think, grand falloons such as any nation, anywhere. And so Vonnegut was, he, this is an ironic concept for him. He believes that, that people often got too zealous about their connections and their communities. At the same time, Vonnegut really yearned for community. Um, he grew up in, in Indiana with a German family, uh, and he often throughout his life felt like he missed home and he missed the community that nurtured him. So it's a, it's a bittersweet concept for Vonnegut, and, and we try to kind of capture both the cynical and the optimistic side of grand fallooning with our festival. Certain big festivals are probably not that helpful for the places where they happen. They bring tons of people in, and then they pack up and leave. But Ed says festivals can also do a lot for their communities. 
it's kind of obvious that after two years of COVID, festivals are a way of, of bringing the community together again and healing and, and feeling like you're part of, a, of something larger and something larger than yourself that isn't negative. I mean, we could all feel like we're a part of COVID. Um, we could all feel like we're a part of the war in Ukraine. But this is an attempt to kind of bring the community together for a positive sense of who we are um, and to like investigate our, our past, present and future. Festivals are interesting. I mean, they're, they're kind of popping up for decades now all, all across the world, particularly with music as their, as their focus. But I think one of the things that we're seeing is that communities are pushing at the borders of, of our arts and culture institutions, and they're thinking of new ways of sharing creative activity, whether it's music or art or dance or performance. And I think that festivals, though they seem like ad hoc and they seem random when they pop up, I think they express a sort of dissatisfaction with like the traditional modes of creative exchange. And communities are exploring the ways in which they want to think about themselves and their creative activity. So I'm really, I'm, I, I like watching the kind of the festival circuit and how festivals rise and fall and, and what they're trying to express, you know, as they pop up. But going back to Vonnegut and his spirit, I can't think of any other author that appeals so directly to both the, the left and the right ends of our political spectrum. You know, there's an, there's an incredibly you know, compelling version of Vonnegut as a countercultural hero, you know, a sort of postmodern hippie hero in some way. But, but on the other hand, there's a version of Vonnegut that really a- appeals to the conservative element in our state. Vonnegut, who kind of appreciates, uh, you know, sort of traditional German culture, uh, small government. You know, there are certain things throughout his work that, that I think makes sense to the other side of the spectrum in, in, a, in a more a traditional way. And what's, what's interesting about this fest is it brings all types. Everyone that we meet at the festival has had a moment where they fell in love with Vonnegut, and Vonnegut shaped their thinking in some way. And that's incredible common ground for a community that often feels divided. And it's great to be able to talk about some of those issues through Kurt Vonnegut's work. So I think that that speaks to the local element of this in a really productive way. Grand Falloon runs in Bloomington, Indiana, June 1st through 5th. You're listening to Interstates. When we come back, we'll talk about how late music can be and still be early. Stick around. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. Back in 18th century France, Elizabeth-Claude Jacquet de la Guerre was a renowned musician. As Mozart would be, she'd been trotted around as a child prodigy. Also like Mozart, she grew up to be an incredibly talented composer. She was one of very few composers allowed to dedicate her work to King Louis XIV. The Sun King was particular. Her violin sonatas were these groundbreaking, large-scale works, unlike anything her contemporaries were doing. Highly creative, rhythmically, harmonically, formally. Unlike Mozart, you probably haven't heard of her. I do believe that if there were no first name attached to those sonatas, we would have known those pieces all along as a really important part of the violin literature. Because they were written by someone named Elizabeth, (laughs) they've only recently uh, come to be appreciated for for what they are. This is Ingrid Matthews. I just moved to Bloomington last fall to join the faculty of the Jacobs School of Music. I'm teaching Baroque violin in the Historical Performance Institute. And she is also a board member of Bloomington Early Music. 
Ingrid came into the studio a couple weeks ago with Suzanne Malamud. I am president of Bloomington Early Music. To talk about the festival, which starts today if you're listening to the broadcast, Sunday, May 22nd, and runs through Friday, May 27th. Their theme this year is celebrating women in early music. I invited them in to tell me about the festival, but we ended up talking about a lot more than just the list of events. We talked about women in early music, women like Francesca Caccini, composer and music teacher for the Medicis in early 17th century Italy, Barbara Strozzi, an Italian singer and composer from around the same time, and Elizabeth Claude Jacquet de la Guerre, whose name I just want to hear over and over again. Elizabeth Claude Jacquet de la Guerre. Like that. Thank you, Ingrid. Okay, moving on. We talked about how late you can go and still be early. Is Beethoven early music? Brahms? I didn't even bring up Stravinsky. We also talked about music as art, where it's about expressing intense emotions, versus music as craft, where there's artistry to it, but it's also kind of a job. But before we get to that, I think we should hear about the group that got this whole thing going, shouldn't we? Sure, I can do that. Um, Blue Mansion Early Music was founded in 1992 by Stanley Ritchie, the um, renowned pedagogue who Ingrid studied with. And then a year or so later, the festival took root. It was originally a community music organization, and then it, the organization started working with the HPI, the Historical Performance Institute at the time, called the Early Music Institute. And then from then on, that was, you know, nearly 30 years ago, the festival has has been active. There were a couple years where it wasn't active, and then it came kind of roaring back. This year, post-pandemic, um, we are kind of exploding the festival in a number of directions. And one of the big changes is this turn towards focusing on a, a theme, women being the first time I believe we've done such a thing. And that is really to talk about the question of why is an early music festival still relevant? Why is this something that people should be interested in who aren't already early music aficionados? And, you know, isn't that just music for dead white men, right? And in fact, it isn't. And nobody's going to say that oh, women were more powerful or more influential than they were. But the fact is that we were there and there was a lot that was going on and women were able to overcome obstacles and boundaries and to, to have great success and produce absolutely marvelous, beautiful music. I want to talk more about women in early music, but uh, before we get to that, can one of you just orient us to early music itself? The term early music is an interesting term, and nowadays people are have kind of shifted more towards the language of historical performance. You'll hear those terms kind of interchangeably. But the concept of it is not just that it's old music. But the salient point is to play this music as closely as we can to the way it would have been performed at the time that it was written. And that sheds a lot of light on the music. For instance, to play Bach on the kind of violin that was in use when he was writing sheds so much light on that music and um, helps you to get inside the composer's psyche almost to to use the equipment that they would have known. And so we, we kind of end up in this really fascinating area between scholarship and artistry, because any performance needs to be vibrant and alive in the present moment for a living, breathing audience. But we also want it to have the integrity of being truly informed to the best of our ability by what we know about the history 
of the period. And is there um, tension between those two things? I don't think so. For me, it makes a performance more lively to come at it from this point of view. You know, I think most music, if you approach it from behind, that is, if you look at Bach from the future, you know, through Tchaikovsky and Brahms, I'm just using all the big names, Bach might seem almost kind of dinky. But if you look at Bach or any other composer from behind, from the composers that preceded them, then you see what's revelatory about any music that you play. And there's a freshness and a life to that that I think comes across and can be felt by the audience, even if they have no idea about any of these things I'm talking about. I think it's also important to recognize that we have, you know, as our posters say, nine centuries of music. Early music is a very broad stretch of time. So we're going from Byzantine chant all the way up to the early 19th century. And there is a um, question about where does the term end? Like how early, how late is early, one could say. And we've chosen to to put that at the early 19th century for many reasons, a lot of them based on scholarship, right? On, on a switch from musicians as artisans to artists, from people who worked for churches and and whatnot to people who are independent freelance workers, so to speak. It really pivots on kind of Beethoven in a way, although Haydn and Mozart were doing some of that as well, like freelancing and whatnot. And it, and it also hinges on how people listen to music. You know, what kinds of things were people listening for? And from Beethoven forward, it was almost an autobiographical thing. They're like, oh, what was the composer feeling? Or what were they what were they thinking? What did they believe? And because Beethoven with his like angst and his, you know, circumstances, very angry person, whatnot, you could listen for that. And then people started retroactively applying that to earlier music. And you hear a lot like, oh, what was Bach thinking or what did he believe? Well, he was an artisan. He he believed many things, but is that really what he was doing with the music, or was he fulfilling his job, basically? Can you uh, tell me a little bit more about this distinction between the artisan and the freelancer? Like, it's interesting to realize that this historical juncture or line that scholars have come up with turns partly on questions of work and labor. It hinges also, I think, on art for art's sake, absolute music, Hanslick, who was a philosopher in that era of, you know, art as 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 an instrument, as a political instrument, right, as a, a social instrument, as a job, as opposed to because you're inspired and you want to create great art. You were trained, potentially, you know, many people were trained, many men in particular were trained in conservatory situations, um, the Neapolitan conservatories, for example, which incidentally were originally places where orphans were trained to do jobs. So you had a shoemaking conservatory and you had a music conservatory. There were three or four different varieties, and I've forgotten what the other ones are. And so children were were trained to create this music in, in certain kind of, like the way we learn language, right, um, with these chunks, these like... Um, little little tropes of music and combining them and recombining them and, and just becoming fluent in a way that is so rare today. Um, the training is so different. And I'm, uh, I'm talking about something called partimento. It, it's such a different way. That was, you know, art making as your job, music making as your, as your job. It's still a job, 
right? It, and very much is. But but this concept of of uh, like being the artist and having these you know uh, visions and whatnot were were um, wasn't really as much the case in earlier times. It was uh, an artisan will create beautiful door, right? Something that's functional. I'm just looking at a door, that's why I thought of it. And they'd carve these gorgeous things in it so that it can function as a door that gives the person looking at it the sense of, oh, what's behind it? And how does it function? What is it trying to represent? Whereas an artist would just create the carving and maybe someone would put it on the door. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that makes a lot of sense. It's this idea of self-expression, I think, versus some sort of combination between sort of the functionality and the expression. Ingrid, did you want to say add something? Well, there's another interesting dimension to that same question of how we get to Beethoven being the tortured artist figure that we now see him as, which has to do with the act of improvisation, which was a really important part of music making all through the Baroque period. In fact, what we call the Baroque period, 1600 to 1750, is defined by the use of something called basso continuo, which is a practice of improvisation. And it's when we get just towards the end of the 18th century and the advent of public concerts and uh, composition had reached a point of complexity and virtuosity that improvisation was no longer really practical. And so the composer really rises up as a figure in his own right, whereas prior to that time, composers were players and there wasn't really the separation. Over in the Jacob School right now, you'll somebody is will be either a composition major or a performance major, but I think it's quite rare to find somebody who's really, um, really doing the whole act of being a musician in that, in that way. It would have been assumed in the 17th and earlier 18th centuries that composers all played instruments and therefore the composer, with quotes around it, wasn't this exalted figure that the composer became later. Mm -hmm which goes hand in hand with those kinds of changes in the the way we look at the craft of music making that Suzanne was talking about. Yeah, it's rare now to find people who can do all those different facets of music making, right? Or or because the training isn't necessarily there, right? You're either a comp composition major or a performance major, and it's not often that there's not many programs that I know of that would combine those two. Well, we live in such a different world, and yeah. that's why it's so interesting and inspiring to look back at these nine centuries of how music was made and what we can learn from that, what ideas we can, we can get from um, this kind of both musical and artistic and historical adventure. Yeah, it's true. Another thing, um, Ingrid, you mentioned the public concert hall coming into in the late 18th century and that's a that's a difference also a lot of this music you know we weren't in an era where people sat in an audience were perfectly still and perfectly quiet you know wearing all black like we are <laughs> <laughs> yeah. not clapping when they wanted to but clapping at the end it, that's that is a 19th century convention and that again just like these other ways of reading into music from earlier on now people sit there in perfect stone silence and are afraid to make noise, or if you cough, you're scolded by the people in front of you or whatever. And it was, you know, it wasn't as stiff, formal a thing. Even as late as Liszt, who would have recitals where he would pass around 
like a vase or a, a, a basket or something, and people would write down what they wanted him to play, and they'd throw it in, and then he'd pick it out and just play, whatever. And and also this question of what's actually on the page, you know, the, the score as this, or text as this, like, absolute, this is what you should play. You just had a few signals on the page, basically, and then you, you know, a lot of people just played from that um, because of their training earlier on. So it's there's a lot of differences in the way music was played, the way it was listened to, where it was listened to, and how that that's kind of why we make that break in the early 19th century, because it just became a very different endeavor. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about the what you're just describing about how it used to be done is like how we think about jazz a lot now. And I'm thinking about how it seems like it just became a lot more formal and formalized around in the early 19th century. I'm nodding my head. Yes. <laughs> Early music, I, I do want to say, can certainly apply to Beethoven and later. I would say that you could apply that term to any period which is using different sort of equipment than what we would unthinkingly use today. A Beethoven piano is very different from a modern Steinway. And and the mm-hmm. Brahms violin sonatas would have been played on gut strings so even just a shift like that is going to open up a new sound world and a new aesthetic. And so for some people, anything that could possibly fall under that, the, the umbrella of that concept could be considered early music. But I think nine centuries is enough for um, yeah, <laughs> for our purposes yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah, and that's where the term historical performance practice comes in, right? Because even if it's early 20th century, you can apply historical performance practice with a different set of circumstances or whatever they were doing. You know, if you think about the progression of Bach, we look at what the circumstances were at the time and just thinking about the number of players or singers, right? Bach was kind of underground for a little while and then was revived in the 19th century by Felix Mendelssohn. But he revived it in a 19th century style with massive forces, meaning lots of singers, not just one on a part or two on a part. There's the, like a, when you hear the B minor mass at, you know, at, at Lincoln Center, for example, there's a hundred singers, you know, and, and that is a glorious, amazing experience. It's just mind boggling and just so uplifting. It's also really instructive and glorious and wonderful to hear it with one person on a part where, you know, the singers are often covered over by the instrumentalists. And you can't always hear what they're singing. And, you know, and it's it's and that is the way it was done. I think the tension arises with the historical performance movement where particularly in the 1970s, like there was an attempt to say this is the way it should be done. And now I think people say this is a way and it's something that's really useful to know and to hear and to experience and to understand and then go off and do it with a hundred singers but experience what it was so that you can kind of make your choices in that way as someone who's producing the music and for an audience also you get so much out of both ways so i wonder if as you worked on developing the festival were there particular women or stories that you came across that you were excited to realize existed? Some of the women from um, the 17th and 18th centuries that I was most excited to present, and all of these women will be represented 
in the festival are people like Francesca Caccini, who at one point was the highest paid musician at the Medici court. You know, she was a big shot. Um, now her name is completely overshadowed by that of her father, Giulio Caccini. But in her lifetime, she was a really important performer, virtuoso singer, and important composer. Or Elizabeth Claude Jacques de la Guerre at the court of Louis XIV, who was again, just a renowned musician. She, like Mozart, had been kind of trotted around as a child prodigy when she was young and then became a really, really important figure. My bias as a violinist has to do with her violin sonatas, which were absolutely groundbreaking, the first published in France, and large-scale works far beyond anything that any of her contemporaries were doing. So, yeah, these are just a few of the yeah. a few of the stories I'm excited about. Yeah, bringing. there's one ensemble that we have playing for us. They are from The Hague in the Netherlands and they're they're called West End Winds and they put together what to me was a really is a really striking program and that is um wind band music from the late 18th century. Is that right? 18th Anyhow, towards the end of our period. And uh, wind instruments, everything from brass to woodwinds and whatnot, were the domain of men. Particularly woodwinds have their roots in military bands. Women were not really allowed to play. Women played keyboard. They played string instruments. Uh, they sang. But you weren't supposed to be blown on a horn. You know? And so that changed in the 19th century. But it was not an appropriate posture for women. And you can imagine, right? Not appropriate. Um, and so this ensemble traced the, the performance careers of four or five female performers who went against that grain and actually played in public and had careers as, as performers on wind instruments. And what did they play and where did they play it? One of them moved from Germany to the United States. And like the reviews were often quite sexist. Um, yeah, she played pretty well for a woman, or it was really not appropriate for her to be, you know, that sort of thing. And and I just thought that was so interesting because we think most we think mostly of composers, um, but think about the performers who also went around the edges and found ways to make their music and to make it, and to have an impact. And despite being derided or you know reviewed negatively and uh just making it happen for them and so that was really inspiring to me to see that and this group of five young musicians female musicians in the Netherlands who are who have like dedicated their their ensemble to recreating this music it was impressive the theme of this year's festival women in early music is just such a wonderful theme and there's kind of an imbalance to be corrected to to state the obvious i i think the genius of women has been overlooked in the western world and now we are seeing attempts to correct that in all kinds of arts organizations and among those i think early music and early music presenters have a really interesting role to play since we're kind of all about history and uh, what's happened in a past that we cannot change but I think early music does play a special role. In this country, it's interesting to note that what we call the early music revival 
was taking place in the 60s, 70s, concurrently with the civil rights movement, sexual revolution, feminism. And so I really like to think that early music carries with it some of that same energy that has kind of a um, subversive, maybe, energy that has the potential to crack open some rigid systems that may have outgrown their usefulness and create a world in which musicians of, of every gender are free to pursue the careers that, you know, that they're sort of meant to manifest. Ingrid has a theory about why the early music revival happened alongside the struggles for civil rights and women's liberation. I think politically, there was a questioning of authority and socially a questioning of authority. And the way that manifested in music had to do with uh, the hierarchies. Classical music had kind of solidified into an extremely hierarchical structure with orchestras having an almost militaristic (laughs) level of who's allowed to speak to whom in the chain of command. And early music turned that upside down and created a world in which female music directors, for instance, like Monica Huggett of Portland Baroque Orchestra or Jeanette Sorrell of Apollo's Fire or Jean Lamont of Tuffle Music or myself with Seattle Baroque Orchestra, have been able to enjoy flourishing careers in leadership with an ease that would have not been possible prior. I wonder if that, you know, the the presence of women in leadership roles in early music, which outweighs, there are women in leadership roles in, in the broader classical world, but not to that extent. You know, there's the percentage of female conductors. If you looked at a percentage of, of modern orchestras, I'm sure it would be a Quite a tiny percent, whereas Baroque orchestras, I would say we could easily be 50% uh, female-led. That would be my So that's a significant, significant difference. So I think think our field has, you know, has played a certain role in opening things up. Yeah, and what that does, I, I feel like, especially since we have this theme this year with women in early music, having that presence of women in leadership roles kind of sets early music up as a, as a model for people to look back in history and see what was actually going on as opposed to what history handed down to us and and the you know what stories were erased or marginalized or overlooked or just flat out denied you know how many women had to sign their compositions with their brother's name or something like that and i think having that perspective of women in leadership predisposes early music to look at that stuff with a more fresh and open mind. Well, thank you both so much for being here and talking about all this stuff, and I'm really excited about the festival. Thank Thank you you for having us, Yeah, thank you so much. That was Ingrid Matthews and Suzanne Malamud from Bloomington Early Music. Their festival runs Sunday, May 22nd through Friday, May 27th, with live and online performances and workshops. You're listening to Interstates. Up next, film festivals as a form of community service. Stick around. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers, and it's time for our regular segment on movies in the Midwest with our friend down the hill, the director of the Indiana University Cinema, Alicia Cosma. When we recorded, Alicia didn't know this episode was going to be about festivals. 
I didn't know this episode was going to be about festivals. But she must have had a feeling when she came in a few weeks ago, because she said to me, Today, I wanted to talk a little bit about film festivals. And I said, Great. So I think most listeners are familiar with the general idea of film festivals. There's Sundance, Tribeca, TIFF, which is in Toronto. But outside of those big names, I think what's sometimes less understood is that there are a wide variety and types of film festivals. Festivals like Sundance are, from a certain perspective, giant business meetings where directors showcase their films to try to get distributors to pick them up. Other festivals like TCM, Classic Film Fest, is exactly that. It's a place for classic films to be shown, but also a place for showing restored classic films. Um, So films that you would necessarily not have been able to be seen before because they weren't in a condition to be screened, but they've been restored by the Turner Classic Movie Foundation or some other entity, and they premiere the restorations there. And is that at a particular location? It's in L.A. L.A., okay. And so because it's in L.A., it gets all the fancy-smancy people there. And so, for example, this year they're showing E.T. for its 40th anniversary with Steven Spielberg and Drew Barrymore and a bunch of other people that were in the film. Then there's more narrow-casted kind of focus film festivals, something like Black Star Film Festival in Philly, which is an amazing organization that's both a film festival but also a year-round programming entity that's focused only on black, brown, and indigenous filmmakers and their films. So you get a big wide variety, right, of the types of film festivals that you can have and also reasons that they exist. There's lots more types, but one of the types that I think is pretty critical that I wanted to talk about today are regional film festivals. Glad to hear it. Yeah. You know, I'm becoming, for someone from New York, quite the shill for the Midwest, <laughs> thanks, to, thanks to this show, Alex. <laughs> I mean, thankfully, there's a lot of good things here to talk about. That makes it super easy. So regional film festivals, they're exactly what they sound like. They are film festivals that are dedicated or or um, constructed by region. But because they're regional, I think people often tend to write them off, although they have a lot of value. And regional film festivals matter for a couple reasons. So the first is they provide incredible cultural and economic development for a city. Regional film festivals often don't just exist as film festivals. They, like, maintain a presence in the community that they're in for a really year-round kind of presence. So there's one of my favorite film fests to go to in the world is in Columbia, Missouri, and it's called the True False Documentary Film Fest. It's truly incredible. I have seen some of the best and my favorite movies that I've ever seen in Columbia, Missouri. Regional film festivals oftentimes provide a venue for films that don't make it to big chain theaters, especially big chain theaters in the Midwest, or even smaller art house theaters in the Midwest, and definitely not streaming services. So in most cases, they're the only place that you can truly see something anywhere. And that is maybe their best kept secret, is that there are films there that you will read about and you will hear about and you will see nominated for best foreign picture or best documentary, and you'll say, hey, I've never heard of that movie. But they were definitely playing it down the road at your local regional film festival, you know, like a couple months earlier. In what sense are regional film festivals regional? Are they drawing on movies from a particular region, or are they... So they're regional in the sense that they're location-based, in that they they are bringing films from a wide variety of places to their region, not based on a specific programming theme, not based on a specific like identity or like a narrow casted audience, but based on the fact that they want 
this type of arts and culture in their specific geographic region. So it's kind of like film is community service, essentially. And these films could be from anywhere. They're not necessarily from that region. They're from anywhere. But I will tell you, one of the nice things about regional film festivals is they always have a section representing their state or their region in competition because they're really good like that. They like to rep the home turf. Like at the um, at True False in Columbia, they have two sections, like one of Missouri filmmakers and then another section just of filmmakers from University of Missouri. So, yeah, regional film festivals are an essential link in the industry chain. They generate a lot of press. They generate audience engagement and they showcase new and up and coming artists, oftentimes regional artists. But one of my favorite things and one of the things that has become so critical about regional film festivals in these last three years is that they actually are a way for small and engaged local audiences to have a say in constructing their own film culture. Because it's not just... You know, am I going to choose from seeing Sonic 2 at AMC 1 or Sonic 2 at AMC 2? You know, (laughs) like you actually get a really robust slate of programming to choose from. And it's programming that you are directly supporting by being in attendance. Think back to everything that you watched over the course of the pandemic, how much of it was driven solely by access and how much of that access is now driven by algorithms or what movie theaters are still open, or what type of variety they're willing to bring or not willing to bring. Regional film fests break that algorithm open. They give you a pathway to go around it. You're not like suffering between watching like Love is Blind 1 or Love is Blind 1 UK. You know what I mean? Like you can, I mean, not that you shouldn't watch this. You you can go and, and find a whole roster of things that you didn't even know existed and that don't necessarily have to be suggested to you by an algorithm that shows you what's Netflix's top 10. Like you actually know that people are thinking about and curating these things and bringing you these films for a reason. And you have a plethora of movies to choose from. Unsurprisingly, there are lots of awesome reason, regional film festivals in the Midwest. So I talked about True Falls, which is every March. And I can't recommend enough that people go. It's amazing. But there are two a little bit closer, one in Indianapolis and one in Champaign, Illinois. So in Indianapolis, right here in our backyard, we have the Heartland Film Festival. So Heartland's been around since 1991. They just celebrated their 30-year anniversary, which for a regional film festival is truly phenomenal. And they deserve every accolade. Their programming is like off the wall great. They played more than 300 films this October in person and in hybrid. They're a really vibrant mix of that big name kind of art house title that won't screen anywhere else, international films, and really importantly, premieres of new work by up and coming artists, either international or local or regional or whatever. Like they bring everything to the table. They are actually super affordable to attend. You don't have to spend a million dollars. You can go and watch one movie. You can buy a pass. You can watch three movies. You get to choose your own adventure, essentially, from this really beautifully curated slate of films that they bring you. So it's every October. So time to go for next year. And it's a very easy drive away. And a lovely weekend trip as well. And I'm really looking forward to to next year as well because they do a phenomenal job. 
The second is EbertFest, which name might sound familiar, and it should. So EbertFest is actually happening next weekend, a little farther away from Indianapolis. It's in Champaign, Illinois, and it was started by the legendary Roger Ebert. He started it in 1999, and he started it specifically to highlight films that he thought were overlooked, either by distributors, by critics, or by audiences. And he really wanted to make sure that those films like got a second chance at being appreciated. And he called it at first like the Roger Ebert Overlooked Film Festival. It kind of just evolved into being Ebert Fest. And it's now a little bit more than a film fest. There's panels. There's workshops. There is a new like Ebert Film Center that's developing in conjunction with the festival. But one of the really unique things about Ebert Fest and one of the reasons I like it so much is that unlike every other film festival, they only show one film at a time. So the biggest problem with going to film festivals is that you constantly have to choose what you want to see and you're always missing out on something simply because no one should watch 14 movies in a day. Like you just can't sit down for that long (laughs) and your eyes start to hurt and it's terrifying and you always miss something, right? Or you're always running and catching half of something or missing the beginning of something else. But Roger was so, like, committed to the fact that people really needed to see these movies that he they only play one movie at a time. And they play it in this old, historic, like, movie palace theater with a balcony and, like, amazing projection. And so, one, you never miss anything. And two, everyone is watching the same things all the time. And so the conversations that develop from that, everyone watches a movie, everyone piles out of the theater into like the street that's closed off in front of it. There's food and there's coffee and there's cocktails and everyone's talking. And you are having like a communal conversation with like 2,500 people. And you've all just seen the same thing. And it feels cool to be able to like hear snippets of conversation and be like, oh, no, I know exactly what they're talking about. Or just like join into another random conversation with your own thoughts because everyone's talking about the same thing. So it's really nice. There's no like fear of missing out with Ebert Fest. And since it was started by Roger, it gets a lot of swanky guests that wouldn't normally hang out in East Central Illinois. <laughs> so this year, Guillermo del Toro is going to be there actually for the second time. And he's showing a black and white version of his Oscar-nominated film, Nightmare Alley. And Roman Barani is going to be there, who's a personal directorial favorite of mine who I strongly recommend checking out his films, but only if you like watching movies about how, you know, late capitalism is destroying the world. (laughs) But they're amazing (laughs) movies nonetheless. Who doesn't like those kinds of movies? That's what I say. If you want to understand the world. Listen, Alex, my students would strongly disagree that there are people (laughs) that don't like those types of movies. But he's incredible. And tons of other guests are going to be there, too. So it's a really great opportunity to see a bunch of really cool movies that you may have overlooked, new versions of films that you saw that you get to watch in a new way, and like be in really close proximity and potentially even bump into artists and filmmakers and storytellers that you really like. I know sometimes it often feels like we don't have a choice in the options that we have for watching stuff. You know, it's prequel one or sequel two or whatever. And while there's nothing wrong with those, that doesn't mean that's what audiences want to watch forever. Regional film festivals really bring that diversity and that, like, surprisingness that you get when you see a film that you had no idea what to expect and you walk out loving it and 
you can't imagine never having seen it before and you can't can't wait to watch it again. They're really great at that. So this is a way for us to help them do that. You can buy a ticket or you can buy a pass. You can spend a night. You can spend the weekend and you can just see some really great stuff. And maybe Guillermo del Toro. Who knows? <laughs> Indiana University cinema director Alicia Cosma. Go to a film festival. Be prepared. Make a spreadsheet. Unless you're going to Ebert Fest. You won't need a spreadsheet for that. All right. Speaking of planning, let's get back to Danielle Look and wrap up with the unexpected. She went to this mountaintop music festival in West Virginia. And... We had gone to see one of our favorite bands and they played, they were kind of like the headliner on, on Saturday night. So they had like a, like an 11 o'clock time slot that was on Freeze McGee. And then, uh, it was really unique because the band that played after them was bluegrass band. And that was just different because bluegrass is usually like a daytime, uh, set, so that they put them on after this hard rock jam headlining set was was unique. So we watched that. And then, you know, by the time we got back to camp after those shows, it was getting close to being time for the sun to come up. And we happened to be not that far from kind of like the very top of the mountain. And so it was just a quick little hike up the rest of the mountain. And we got up there just before the sun came up. It was like twilight. So I... We were literally higher than the, the clouds in the sky uh, because of the time of day and the temperature. All of the clouds had sunken down into the valley at the top of the mountain over there. And so we just sat there and as the sun started to come up and get a little bit warmer, the clouds started to lift and then we were in the clouds, we were in a fog. And then, you know, we went back and <laughs> definitely went to bed after that. So I just... You know, now I live in Colorado and I'm on mountains all the time, but it's rare that I'm on top of a mountain before the sun comes up. And to have that vantage point and to watch the clouds rise like that and just kind of crawl up the mountain is an experience I'll never forget. And that's what I think is special about music festivals for a lot of people is that they are, it just feels magical in a way. And it, and it has to do with that being in a different part of the world with people who are strangers but friends at the same time and you all have the same desires and, and kind of lifestyle and you just like go have your own private little corner of the world for a few days and and that's just that's really special and magical. So if you can go find a little corner of the world where you can meet some strangers and become friends. It doesn't have to be a festival but who knows maybe you'll make it one. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Aabon Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chilla, Michael Pascash, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Danielle Look, Ed dallas Comentali, Suzanne Malamed, Ingrid Matthews, and Alicia Cosma. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. The early music you heard was selections from violin sonatas by none other than Elizabeth Claude Jacquet de la Guerre. I got to say it again. That was performed by Ingrid Matthews, Byron Schenkman, and Marguerite Tindemans. All right, let's listen to something.
You've been listening to The Zesting of a Lemon, recorded, as usual, in Bloomington, Indiana. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening. Start slinging.